Welcome to the Carlina Show podcast. I'm your host, Carlina Engwin. Today is Monday, August 20th, 2018, and this is episode 10 of the podcast. Today on the show, we have Raina DuBose. Raina is a basketball coach and motivational speaker in Howard County, Maryland. In 2002, Raina was a freshman basketball player at Virginia Tech. One day in April, she wasn't feeling well, and her teammates took her to the hospital. She was later diagnosed with meningococcal meningitis, a rare bacterial infection that eventually caused her her forelimbs. In today's episode, Raina walks us through her journey, from being a star athlete to losing her limbs and learning to live independently again, to eventually going back to Virginia Tech and finishing her degree. She talks about the mentors who encouraged her to become a public speaker and share her inspirational story with others. For Raina's contact information, visit the Carlina Show website at carlina.fireside.fm and click on Raina's guest or episode page. If you are listening to this interview on YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. You can help support the show by rating and reviewing on iTunes or visit our Patreon page and become a patron. One more thing, thank you Stephen Lorca for audio editing and graphic design. Now I bring you... Reina DeBose. If you want to just tell me a little bit about what you're doing, what you're up to now, and then we'll go back and talk about um, the journey you you went through. These days, I've been, um, I'm a permanent full-time substitute teacher at one of the alternative schools in Howard County. I'm also an assistant football coach at a high school. And also, boys JV head basketball coach at high school. So you do all you have all of those three jobs right now. Yeah, and I'm also working as a hostess at a restaurant for a part time job. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. And are you doing um, like speaking engagements still, or like traveling and speaking to groups? No, I'm not really speaking as much as I used to. I've all kind of channeled my energy into the school system now. How about okay. um, you, you know, take us back to your, to your childhood and just tell a little bit about um, your family, where you come from, and um, maybe the first time you played basketball. My parents and my older brother, they're all from Norfolk, Virginia. I'm the only one in the family from Columbia. <laughs> they make sure to let me know that all the time, that I'm the weird one. <laughs> um, so I guess before I started playing basketball, I was actually a ballerina. I love, love, love dance and um, tutus and getting my hair done, makeup done and all that stuff. And then probably about the time I hit maybe seven or eight is when I started playing in um, little rec leagues around the county, playing rec boys basketball. And from then, from then, I always just stuck with it. That was just like, I knew that was my thing. We were a very athletic family, so sports ran in my family. My father was a big-time football basketball star in his day. My older brother... Quentin Burton was also a big star in his day. He played for um, 
Providence College. And so I always just knew, you know, I want to get a scholarship like my brother and go to school and play sports. <laughs> How much older is your brother than you? We're 15 years apart, which is crazy because 15 just so happens to be our family magic number as well. Um, my brother wore 15. I wore 15 in college. And now my nephew is wearing 15. <laughs> really? That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So do you have other siblings or you just have your one brother who's 15 years older? Just my one brother. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So you started playing basketball, uh, you said, when you were seven? Well, seven or eight years old. Yeah, somewhere around then. I know I had to make a transition from dance to something quickly. Because <laughs> back then, I didn't really know about the Juilliards and all the different um, art and dance schools. So I was just thinking, you know, I can't really go anywhere for dance and made that transition over to basketball and loved it ever since. When you were in high school, coming up to your, you know, junior and senior years, what were you hoping would be like your profession? I mean, did you, were you thinking professional basketball at that point? Oh, definitely. I already knew I was going to be playing somewhere overseas basketball because again that's what my older brother did he played over in switzerland before he blew out his knee i wanted to really be the first woman to play in the nba this is before the WNBA came along uh-huh and then um and so did you apply to a lot of different colleges and you decided on uh virginia tech well actually Actually, I didn't apply to any colleges. The colleges came to me for my skill on the basketball court. When I started playing basketball as a kid, I made it my I made it my profession. So I perfected it. I always wanted to get better. If I wasn't in school or doing a school function or playing on a school team, I was in somebody's gym getting better with, you know, the older men the bigger boys just trying to get stronger, better, and tougher. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I have to admit that I, I know just a little bit, well, actually, I know nothing about basketball, so I'm just a little, I'm a little bit intimidated <laughs> by, by talking about basketball, so I hope that's okay. <laughs> no, it's all right. <laughs> okay. I just want to put that out there because if I ask any silly questions, that's why. <laughs> I got you. Oh. No worries. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, all right. So now, um, so so you decided or you chose to go to Virginia Tech. And why did you choose Virginia Tech? I chose Virginia Tech because, like I said earlier, I was recruited really by all of the top Division One schools at my time when um, I was being recruited for college and. I really didn't know where I wanted to go. I just knew I wanted to go somewhere far away just to see what, you know, another part of the world had to offer. And I ended up choosing Virginia Tech because even though all those schools were recruiting me, I had a tough time trying to get my SAT scores together. And it was one class they were saying I needed to take, and I knew I'd already took this class, but for some reason we just couldn't find it in one day. I finally, I got my SAT scores up just a little bit higher 
from when I took it the time before. And after doing a whole bunch of digging, I found a computer class that I did take my freshman year of high school that was really keeping me from having to boost my SAT scores any higher. And Virginia Tech was just a handful of those schools at that rough time that stuck with me and that really believed in me that I would get the scores and the grades that I needed. Mm-hmm. And so from there, it was pretty easy. You know, you hear kids talk about loyalty and things these days, and Virginia Tech was loyal to me at that point in time. Yeah, yeah. They believed in me. Talk a little bit about what it was like um, your first like going to Virginia Tech from from Maryland and and playing on the basketball team as a as a freshman. Yeah, well, actually, I was really excited to get down to Tech, but in the beginning stages of what we call the recruiting process, I guess you could say I wasn't so excited. I remember because I played AAU in the Maryland area as well, so we traveled almost every weekend. And with different teammates and parents, we would just drop in to see the colleges if we were in that city at the time. And I remember our last trip, we were driving to Tennessee for our last tournament of the summer. And we had to go through um, Blacksburg or pass, pass by Blacksburg on the way. So, you know, the parents, they had the great idea, you know, let's stop so the kids could see the school. And so we were like, okay. I wasn't excited because I was just like, we're in the middle of nowhere. It stinks out here like cows and stuff. And it's just, what the heck is a hokey bird? Let's keep on sucking. Because at that time, all I knew was I wanted to be a Tennessee Lady Vol. I always wanted to play for Coach Pat Summit. That was my dream. And I was more excited seeing all that uh, orange and white than at the time. But we stopped there that day, and I had a great time. We met some of the coaches, and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> and then, so when it got down in the recruiting process to what they also call official visits is where if the school, you know, the program is interested in you, they'll pay to bring you out for a weekend so you can spend time with the team and see the nightlife and, you know, the student life and just what it's like to be an actual Hokie for a couple of days. And I took my visit to Virginia Tech, and again, I had a blast. It was almost like family, and that really just kind of eliminated the hopes of the poop in the air and <laughs> the farms every half a step you would take. Uh-huh. And that really just erased all of that for me, and I got that feeling was, you know, this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And ever since then, that's where I've been. <laughs> right, right. And um, so did your did your illness happen when you were a sophomore or a freshman no, in college? I was still a freshman. We had just completed the season. I came home for Easter break for the weekend and went back and that's when everything started. Okay. Um, could you talk about um, what you remember from that day? Um, or, yeah, what, what do you remember from that day? So I remember my roommate and I, our alarm clock went blaring off early morning because we had team pictures 
to our media guy. And I just remember when the alarm clock was chirping, I remember screaming at my roommate, you know, help, I need help. Something's not right. Mm-hmm. And she kind of jumped down out of her bunk and, and she called the coach and told the coach that I wasn't feeling well because initially the night before was when it really all started. I just came back from Maryland from Easter break for a couple of days with another teammate. We had workouts and study hall, and I ended up passing out in study hall. They took me to the hospital and told me I was just dehydrated. They pumped me with a few bags of um, fluid and sent me back to my dorm that night. And then that next morning, like I said, the alarm clock went off. I screamed for my roommate that I wasn't feeling well and for her to call the coach. And the coach kind of told her, you know, just get me to the gym because we had mandatory team media guide pictures. So my roommate, she got me dressed. Another teammate, the, the three of us, we usually always all walked over together. She helped get me dressed. They threw me over their shoulder, carried me to the gym, sat me down um, on the stool in front of my locker. Another one of my teammates helped get me dressed that day for pictures. And I just remember my roommate kind of easily basically dragging me into the gym. Thank goodness that's who I got to stand next to for pictures. She was literally just holding me up the entire time. I was so weak, so lethargic. I was exhausted. I thought I had the flu. Mm -hmm. And come to find out, I didn't have the flu. Um, After pictures, an assistant coach, she kind of drove me across the parking lot to the on-campus doctors. And the last thing I remember from there was just seeing the nurses with a wheelchair come out to the passenger side of the car door. They opened it. They picked me up. They sat me down. And they shut the door behind me and pushed me into the building. I blacked out, and I didn't wake up for a couple of weeks later. Wow. What is your first memory from waking up? Yeah, it was a couple of weeks later. I had been in a coma. I had been through three bite blocks on the helicopter ride over. The first helicopter had some mechanical issues, so they had to send another one. My parents and my coaches had beat both of the helicopters to the hospital, University of Virginia. And when they got there, doctors were already kind of preparing them that I was going to be dead when I arrived. Oh, wow. And my dad kind of just looked at the doctors and was just like, you don't know what you're talking about because you don't know my daughter. Mm -hmm. And once I got there, I remember waking up out of that coma. I had an agenda that day. Like, I literally had things to do. It was finals time. So before I could realize that my fingers and my toes were actually dead and inoperable, I tried to get out of the hospital bed and go because I had finals. I had workouts, individual workouts, and I was freaking out because I couldn't be late for that stuff because I didn't want to run. Right. And before I could actually get out of the bed, the plastic surgeon kind of reeled me back in like, whoa, 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 hey, Raina, you know, my name is Dr. Katz, and I'm sorry to say, but you have bacterial meningitis. We're going to have to amputate all four of your limbs. Wow. And that was how I learned I was 
sick and going to lose my hands and my feet that day. Oh, my goodness. And, and your family was in the room with you when that happened? Yes, my parents were in there. The nurses was in there. And I was devastated. I was devastated not only because of the news he just told me, but because I started crying. Mm -hmm. For me, crying has always been a sign of weakness. And as an athlete, you know, you don't show weakness to your opponent. And this day, I just couldn't get myself together. So I cried and I cried and I cried for hours until something internally clicked and was just like, you know, turned to your right where my parents were standing next to my bed. And they were just kind of giving me that look they used to give me when it was game time. And it was, get out there and let's kick some butt. And once I kind of saw that look, I kind of sucked it all together and was just like, all right, let's go. I've got things to do. I've got to get to practice and I need to take my finals. Wow. And how much longer were you in the hospital after that? So I ended up being in the hospital 97 days total. Okay. And how many of those days were you in a coma? Three weeks. Three weeks. Okay. Okay. And what was the rest of your time in hospital, in the hospital like? It was horrible. For anybody to know me is to know that I am a, I, I love people. I love meeting new people. I'm extremely a social butterfly, talkative, and I just, I didn't want any part of anybody. I would talk mostly because I couldn't talk. I had a trach in my throat. So I just found things very frustrating because I wasn't able to access things the way I was used to. The change was very hard. I never wanted to do therapy. I always wanted to be alone. I, w I would always ask for my teammates to come visit me. And then when they would get there and I would see them outside the door, I didn't want them to come in because I was embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And because it was difficult to, you actually had to get dressed before you could come into my room. You had to put on a, a, like a little uh, paper dress. You know, you had to put gloves on, you had to put a hat on, you had to put a face mask on, and it was, it was embarrassing because it was just like, you know, it's that realization, oh, my God, I'm really sick, and oh, gosh, it was devastating. Do you remember the first day you left the hospital? Yes. Oh, it was a joyous occasion. So describe I that day to me. <laughs> I I remember um, I used to love to for my parents to put me in a wheelchair and just take me for a walk around the hospital. And this day, I knew this would be the last walk ever. So I had my parents, you know, I asked them if they'd take me for the last round. And then when they came in there with that paperwork to have me ambulance to Baltimore, I was just ecstatic. I was, that was a day... Out of those 97 days, I remember ever smiling. Mm -hmm. And it was because I was leaving that hospital and I was coming home. But I knew I wasn't coming home home. I was coming home to a Baltimore hospital to learn how to be on my own. So that was a little exciting in itself. Oh, I see. Okay, so you left the hospital in... Virginia and went to the hospital in Baltimore where we where you were closer to your family? Yes. 
Okay. Okay. Um, and so what did they do at the, at the hospital in Baltimore? What type of work did they do? So that hospital was getting me back tougher because I wasn't eating at UVA unless it was pink grapefruit or smoothies from Smoothie King. <laughs> because I had no taste, my taste buds, I didn't have anything. Everything just tasted horrible. So they work on, on getting my strength up and making sure I was eating and therapy, learning how to how to uh, maneuver myself because I hadn't had my prosthetics yet. So I was learning how to scooch on my butt, how to transfer from a wheelchair to a car, you know, from a wheelchair to my bed when I was able to go home. Uh, I taught myself how to use a computer, um, just how to be functional, basically, how to take care of myself. And also how to teach my mom and my dad how to help take care of me as well when I was able to go home. Because I imagine their house wasn't uh, wheelchair accessible at that point. No, it wasn't. And they thought about, they talked to all the necessary people to get a ramp in the house and have doors widened. And I just remember telling them, no, don't do any of that because I don't plan on being this way very long. And I'm so happy to this day they never did any of that. The only thing they did was buy me a manual wheelchair, which I love to hop in and make circles in their carpet still to this day. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only use that gets out of it. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and at what point at what point did you get your um prosthetics? I I was probably a few months after I was ambulanced back to Baltimore, it, it, the process took a little longer than necessary because I kept having skin breakdowns on my knees where I had a skin graft. And because that skin was so delicate and the way I was transferring, so I was always crawling on my knees or something. So I would rub the skin off. So that just held my uh, process up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I remember... The official day I got them was a couple of days before my birthday in 2002 because I remember my community threw a community-wide birthday party for me at my high school, mm-hmm. and um, my arms were Caucasian skin. I just remember being very embarrassed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was probably about end of September, beginning of October. Okay. Um, and so what was it, what was it like trying to learn how to, how to use them once, once they did, um, once you got ones that fit properly? Once I got them fit properly, I was just eager to learn. You know, for any athlete, you learn a new position or, you know, you learn a new move and all you want to do is perfect it. So I still had that perfection mentality in my head where, you know, I don't want to be wobbly and depending on other people for a long time. I really want to get back to tech Mm -hmm. and my sisters, my teammates, and I want to be on my own. And so from then on out, 
waiting for my official prosthetics and my skin to toughen up. I was just really sliding myself out of the wheelchair, and I was maneuvering myself. If my parents went to go take a shower or my dad ran outside to get the mail, I made sure in that short burst of time that I was doing something to better myself, whether it was crawling up all the steps my parents had or, go, you know, wheeling myself to the refrigerator to get a snack and feeding myself. All the small victories counted at that point in time because I knew I was getting better to getting back to school. Right. So when did you go back to Virginia Tech for the for the first time after that? So it was probably the in the fall because I remember the girls played Maryland, so they came to Maryland and we hosted them at the house for dinner. My mom made a spaghetti dinner for them. Oh. And they, yeah, they all came and that was really my first outing after being sick. And, you know, we went to the game. I was on the bench with them. I was still in a wheelchair, of course. And it was just great being back in that team atmosphere. And then, then maybe I'll say a month or so ago, October, November-ish, I know it was in the fall, the most beautiful time of the year down there. Uh-huh. It was um, a football game. And that was my first return back to Blacksburg. Because I remember they brought me down on the cart in front of all those thousands and thousands of people. And Coach Beamer presented me with the football. Wow. And it was really my way of just, you know, thanking the Blacksburg and Virginia Tech community for rallying and supporting and thinking about me at that time and welcoming me back. How did you feel at that moment when you were when you had the crowd cheering for you? I was terrified. We play in front of a lot of people for basketball, but not quite like what our football stadium was holding at that time. (laughs) I was extremely nervous because it was also the first time that I was going to be showing that community, you know, my new arms and my new legs and that, you know, I was strong. I was back. So I remember they put me on the golf cart with my mom and dad, my head coach, Bonnie, at the time, um, Sharon, our, the woman who oversaw the women's athletics, and they wheeled me out to the center of the 50-yard line, and I was just like, I want to stand, and I, I want to I stand up. And it was the first time I, you know, pushed up and stood up on my own. and just kind of waves to let them know, you know, thank you. Wow. And I'm coming back. I'm not giving up. Wow. That gives me chills. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. And, and we're, so were you back at, um, you had just returned to Virginia Tech at that point, or were you just visiting? I was just visiting that weekend. But then I knew I wanted to return back to school that fall. I knew it was impossible at the time because I had to learn what I like to call life all over again. But I knew I couldn't get back in the fall, but I was going to be back in the summer. And I worked and I worked and I worked physical and occupational therapy to the point where that that next year, beginning of the year, my occupational therapist ran out of things for me to do. (laughs) 
Wow. Because I was just progressing so quickly mm-hmm. because I wanted, I wanted to get back to Blackbird. Mm-hmm. And then that May came and May, June, mm-hmm. and I was back living in a townhouse with one of my other roommates at the bottom of one of the steepest hills in Blackbird. <laughs> what year was that? This was in 2002. 2002. Okay. And it had been, and it had been how long since your illness at that point? A year. A, a year. Okay. Yep. Okay. Um, and did you start school again? Like start taking classes? Yep. I was back. I was back full time, full fledged. It was basketball, you know, getting up 5.30 a.m. for 6 a.m. workout. Um, I still had my own individual workouts. You know, I had to ride the bike, walk the treadmill, um, class. Like I was in full swing of things for summer for the summer league, summer program. So you just went right back into doing what you right were doing. Like nothing had even happened. This was my rehab for me. So let not only myself but my teammates, but mostly to ease my parents' minds, let them know I'm gonna be okay. I got this. You can stop worrying. <laughs> <laughs> so then you st- did you start coaching at Virginia Tech while you were still a student, or did that come later? No, I was never coaching. They just gave me the title. I was still a part of the team. When the girls got in trouble, Raina got in trouble too. If they had to run suicides and um, sprints and things, I wasn't able to run at that time. But they could, they threw me on a bicycle, and I had to sprint it out on the bike. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So I was still very much, you know, they still honored my scholarship. I was still on scholarship, and I was still a teammate on the team, one of the girls. Right. Okay. Um, at, at what point did you, um, did you decide that you wanted to do public speaking and talk about your experience? So, because that summer when I returned back to school, I took a public speaking class and I loved it. The class was so small that I wanted more of a challenge. So I started inviting friends and my teammates and my coaches and, you know, friends from other sports like the football players and lacrosse girls, you know. I'm like, guys, you know, there's only six people in my class. I need a few more. Can y'all come sprinkle in? <laughs> and they would come in and listen. And actually, the first the first one I ever gave for class, the first presentation I gave, I got a D because I talked too much. <laughs> I went over the time limit. <laughs> but everything else was grand, he said. He was just, you know. You went over the time limit. The class is only an hour long. You talked for about 40 minutes. <laughs> you about that. And from then on out, I remember in the fall, my health teacher, Dr. Redekin, they were talking about meningitis in class. And he asked me if I would come in and just kind of give my testimony and whatnot. And I didn't know what to say at the time. So I found the awesome um, PowerPoint presentation of how the disease, um, your your red blood and white blood cells 
moves throughout your body once it hits. And then I just kind of talked about the things I remembered at the time. And the class loved it. I got remember getting a standing ovation and all, a lot of the kids wanted to talk afterwards and just shake my new prosthetic cane. And it was really cool. And then um, I didn't think I wanted to continue doing it, but I just, you know, it was fun for that that day. And then I remember just walking, you know, always walking down, um, it was called Castle Coliseum at the time, to go to the locker room. You'd always have to pass the football office. And I would always stop in and say hey to Coach Beamer, who was in there, and his assistant coaches, John Boleyn and Christy Verniel, I just had a great relationship with them where I literally just started hanging out with them, waiting for, you know, practices and go in between going to class, where I just developed such a strong bond relationship with the football office. The assistant coach was just like, you know, you should think about public speaking. And really from that day on, that was when I became a public speaker. I remember Coach Frank Beamer was giving a presentation. He asked me to be his guest speaker, um, his guest, you know, just his guest. And I was like, you know, sure, Coach Beamer, anything for you. He's like a god at Virginia Tech. (laughs) Whenever he asks you to do something, you do it. So I remember going to dinner with what we called the Hokey Hardwood Club, and he introduced me to the crowd, and I met so many people and received so many business cards that day of, coaches that wanted me to come speak to their group. And that was really the birth of the motivational speaker as Raina. Wow. Wow. Coach Beamer wrote me my first check to get my business, my speaking business started. And from then on now, it was, it was fun. Yeah. Can you describe a couple of the places where you presented that kind of stick out in your mind? Um, and maybe any interactions you had with people in the audience, like questions they had for you or people that came up to you afterwards and just told you like how much your presentation touched them or is there any, any, any stories you have? Well, that day it was more so of that audience was compromised, um, comprised, um, was filled with people of what I, like I said, we have, a boosters club at Virginia Tech called the Hokey Hardwood Club. And they were just so ecstatic that I was alive, that I was doing better, that I was back to school and, you know, just back in the swing of things. So that night was just filled with all love and hugs and it's great to see you. And, you know, I'm, you know, let me give you my business card. I may have some groups for you to talk to one day. and. That most of that was really vocal stuff, which was great because you know I wasn't driving at the time and I could get around from either my teammates or my coaches, and it was really just like my foot in the door. From then on out, you know, um, other D- Division One schools were calling and asking me to come speak to their groups, to their athletes, and. Uh, uh, conferences and construction companies and middle schools and high schools and the, it just kept getting bigger and getting bigger and 
I didn't understand why. Like, what is it that people are looking for? It's, you know, this story isn't that interesting. I didn't understand at the time. And also because probably I wasn't understanding because I still had so many holes in my story that I didn't know what was happening. But really, people, they just wanted to hear a story. You know, America loves a good, true story. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think um, it was that um, that drew them to your story or the way that you told it? What, what do you think it was? Honestly, I still don't know to this day what it is. I just know I love what I do. I put passion and love behind everything because it's genuine. And I guess more than anything, people are just fascinated that I'm still kicking and I'm still bigger, stronger, faster. You know, I'm still perfecting my craft like I was doing when I was playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it sounds like, I mean, you're you're a very inspirational person. And um, yeah, and I think people are drawn to not only the type of story or the journey that you had, but then also the, the way that you present it, you, oh. you in, you. you know, in particular, you know, um, so, mm-hmm. so I could definitely see why your story and you being the one to tell it would be a draw. Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so how long did you do public speaking? So I did public speaking for 13 years. I mean, I'm still public speaking. I'm just not out on the road as as frequently as I was 13 years ago. I tend to do a lot of local things now, like for um, our high school, middle school, elementary students. So I'm what's known as the um, countywide motivational speaker. So I speak for all of the uh, local conferences here in the DMV area for the schools and um, the health department, stuff like that. So how did, how did public speaking, once you, you know, you had a couple people that said, Raina, you should really get out there and start speaking. And then, and then you did, and you've met with all of these groups and, and, and shared your experience and all. How did that change you? How did that, you know, going out there and sharing your story with others, how did that affect you or change you? I wouldn't say it changed me per se. I would say it made me a stronger person because here I am traveling, you know, the world, putting myself out there for any type of criticism or, you know, rude remarks or anything because, you know, some people don't have filters. And, you know, it takes an extremely thick-skinned person for someone in my, what I'll call, um, new lifestyle to just kind of let it, you know, roll off your shoulder because you're so confident and, you know, you love the person you are and who you've become that any insults or criticisms, you know, you don't really hear them. They get blocked because... You're already so confident in who you are. But, you know, most people don't have that. But luckily for me, as an athlete, I've always had that confidence. And so, really, I only love myself even more today. That 
I don't really care what other people say because you don't know what I'm doing today and how happy I am. You, like most people wouldn't think that I do a lot of the things that I do every day because of what I look like. Yeah. You know, I'm probably the most overactive person you'll ever meet um, with a disability or without a disability, honestly. You know, I still, I go tubing and whitewater rafting and uh, hiking and I run 12 miles every day. You know, I work with boys, high school sports, and they listen. Um, you know, I, I do it all. <laughs> Nothing Nothing changed for me. Things only got better, I can say. So at, at what point did you decide that you wanted to um, uh, coach um, back in, in Maryland and do that more full-time um, and substitute teach and all that? Um, at, at what point did you transition from doing the, all the public speaking to um, coaching? So um, I moved back to Maryland. After I graduated, so I graduated in 07, and I moved back in 08, and I still, you know, was getting acclimated to my new life, and it was still hard at that time to watch basketball. I was, you know, still in my feelings, you know, this isn't fair, why me? Because I am still human at the end of the day, too, and my high school coach was like, you know, you don't need to just be sitting around. You need to get up out of the house. So you're going to start, you know, helping here. So I was going back to my high school and helping out. And then he moved and went to a different high school and he just brought me with him. And a family friend of mine was coaching at this new high school, the girls varsity program. And he, the same thing, you don't need to be sitting around, you know, get up, put, you know, Put, you know, do some good work with yourself. And so that's when I started getting into coaching. So I first started out coaching for three years, girls, high school varsity. And boy, was that brutal. I was calling my mom every night in tears. I'm so sorry for everything I did to you in high school. These girls are ruthless. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So that made it e that made it a very quick and easy transition to go work with the boys varsity program because my high school coach was the head coach for the boys varsity so again he was like come on over here because you're not going to be just sitting around doing nothing and i was also hostessing at a fondue restaurant at the time so i needed to fill in some more spaces in my day so next thing you know i became an assistant boys varsity basketball coach and I loved it and it started giving me that confidence back that you know maybe I can get out here on the court and start playing again and get back into shape and that's what I started doing you know I would say something to them and they would look at me like well what do you mean and why well let me just show you it's easier said you know it's easier to show you that it is to keep telling you and once they saw that I was out there playing with them and doing it with them and running sprints and gassers and beating them. And just like, okay, um, this, this girl might know a little bit of what she's talking about. And from then on there, it was just smooth and easy sailing. Wow. So, you know, the coach, he ended up having kids of his own. And basketball season was kind of cutting in as they got older, them playing sports. 
So he moved and became the head football coach. And he said, you know, hey, I want you to come over here with me too. And you can, and I can still continue to do basketball. And so I was like, perfect. So I was working with the football. And I was, you know, what they call the assistant motivational coach. Every Thursday night, because we play Friday night lights. So every Thursday night, I was giving what I call a um, mental toughness class. So right after practice and right before we'd have our dinner, I would take the guys for an hour and I would teach them mental toughness, teach them what it is to be mentally strong on the field, off the field, on the court, and off the court. And that was just something that they loved, the coaches loved, and I saw results from the classroom to the field or from the classroom to the court. And I was like, no, I think I've just found my next niche in life. And from then on out, six years later, seven years later, I'm still in it. I'm still going. And then I didn't want to, you know, do the hostessing thing too much. Where my freshman year in high school, I played on the varsity team, and we actually won the state championship. And one of my assistant coaches was the assistant principal at the alternative school I'm still working at today. And she said, you know, you should put your application in to be a, a, a substitute teacher. And I thought, well, you know, I don't really want to be a teacher. All I heard was teacher at that time. And I, I know how easy it's not to be a teacher. Right, yeah, yeah. And I was better on the field or in the classroom. And she was like, you know, you can still do that. You you don't have to really do meetings. You really just work between 7 and 2. And then you could go to your practices and everything else. And I was like, well, that sounds awesome. And so I did it. I put my application in to be just a regular substitute teacher, So meaning I could pick the days I wanted to work and go to practice every day. And I loved it. And I did that for the first, um, it'll be five years, six years this um, September. So the first, you know, two, three years, I was just a regular substitute, worked the days I wanted to work. And then after that, they picked up this new position called permanent substitute, where I go in every day like a full-on teacher. Um, and... I'm I'm there all day as support for the teachers or, you know, if a teacher needs to run out or take their kids to a doctor's appointment or they have an appointment, I just jump in and cover for them. And it's almost like nothing changes. The kids are familiar with me because they see me every day. And it really, it it became my passion. And it opened up another door I had no idea I was passionate about working with kids, working more closely with kids. But more than anything, working with these troubled kids. You know, this was my opportunity and my door to let them know, to let them see something different in their lifestyle that they've never seen. Right. A person, you know, with no arms and no legs, but still happy and successful and doing well and doing what she loves and getting joy out of that. Right. But still motivating and inspiring you at the same time to continue to want to be your greater and better self. And I thought, you know, I can really utilize and maximize this to everybody's potential. You know, for myself, I 
this I've just learned so much about myself going through this. People tell me I motivate and I inspire them every day. I don't see it. I just see myself as another person out here who's just trying to be great as well. Mm-hmm. But I was drawing from my audience, from my students, from my athletes. You know, I was drawing energy and motivation and inspiration from them, learning how to do things quicker, better. You know, if I drop some quarters, nickels, or dimes on the floor, you know, learning new ways to pick it up before somebody comes running over, oh, Raina, can I help you because you're handicapped? Because I see you don't have hands and you can't pick that up, you know. It became a game to me of, let me prove to you how awesome I really am. <laughs> I don't need help. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. So, you know, yeah, when I was traveling four or five days out of the week, you know, I would use those days in the airport to do experiments to let people know, you know, hey, just because we're handicapped doesn't mean we need help because we can do things too. So some days I would be fully clothed in a long sleeve hoodie, long sleeve sweatpants, you know. I remember one day, this is my favorite story to tell, I was, you know, sweatpants, sweatshirt, and my wallet was kind of poking out of the back of my backpack and it fell and all my cards and change and stuff kind of scattered. And to the point where I was in the middle of the floor of the airport, people were just stepping over me. Like, oh, excuse me, you know, you're kind of in my way. Can you get your stuff and move it? Hurry up. And I was like, oh, okay. And I kind of took note of a lot of the faces that were um, angrily stepping over me because I just so happened to drop something. And so I gathered my stuff up myself, and I probably moved about, 10 or 12 um, doors down in the airport. And I, this time, I took off my sweatshirt and I took off my sweatpants. I had on a T-shirt and some shorts. And again, I propped my wallet up perfectly so that if I, you know, moved a certain way, it would just fall on the floor again. Uh-huh. And, of course, it did. Everything scattered a little bit further this time. Uh-huh. Change, cards. and. Again, those same mean faces that had just stepped on me and I was in their way and whatnot. Oh, come running over. Oh, can I help you? You know what? Excuse you. Please don't touch my stuff because you just angrily stepped over me. I like 10 or 11 doors down. So why do you think I need your help right now? Oh, because you see what was underneath. Right. No, thank you. Have a great day. Wow. Take your kid with you. I don't want you all's help. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And, you know, I made it my duty that, you know, I'm going to work with these kids worldwide and in my community to let them know you don't treat people bad because they look different from you. Your best friend could be that person in a wheelchair or with no hands and no feet and be the most productive person in your life, and you'll never know because you were too snooty and you put your nose up that stuff because of the way they look. Right. Wow. And it's just so funny to see, you know, I work with elementary, middle, and high school kids Mm -hmm. because I do a lot of the middle school and high school expos that the counties have worldwide as well. And Mm -hmm. I teach them, you know, I make sure I wear dresses and skirts and things that show the person I am, the person I have grown to love, appreciate, 
and have confidence in because this is me. Right. If you don't like it, I'm sorry, I don't care. Yeah. I, I really don't because I'm happy with me. And I guess that could be something else that people really are drawn to as well. And the kids, they just love it. You know, they just want to, I, I like to call myself the petting zoo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they want to come in, they want to touch, you know, the prosthetic leg, they want to shake your hand, they want to know how it works. And really, I love it. Yeah. I really do. I'm running straight to the bathroom to wash my hands afterwards, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's <clears throat> that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, so what's, what's, what's next for you? What are, what are your, your plans for the future? So my plans for the future, this will be my third year as the head boys basketball coach. So my future is I would like to continue going in sports and progressing up the ladder as a coach. I want to continue to, you know, make a difference and let these kids know, you know, you haven't reached your full potential just yet, but I want to help you get there. Okay. Yeah. What about speaking? Are you are you still um, interested in doing public speaking? Almost definitely. I will always, I will forever and always continue to do public speaking. But right now, my main focus, my main focus is on coaching of my athletes and Possibly, maybe even a teaching career down the line. Okay, yeah. What about your What about your personal future? What's What's it, What's in it for you? <laughs> what do you hope for? As far as what? Just anything, like anything other than you know your professional career. But is there anything um, that you that you hope for in your you know personal life with family or your you know your family or whatever? This is the time in my life, I guess you could say, I've also been waiting for. My nephew will be a senior this year. He goes to Marionapolis Preparatory School up in New Jersey. And I am just thrilled and elated to watch him play his senior year and watch him sign his national letter of intent to find out what school he'll be going to. Wow. I am looking forward to sitting in somebody's stands and wearing somebody's jersey that says, I am his auntie, his <laughs> number one fan. <laughs> that is what I'm looking forward to in my future also, cheering for him. This is the nephew that's number 15? Yes, my brother's son, yes. Okay, okay, nice. I am looking forward to his success this year. <laughs> oh, good, good. And I'm sure he'll be happy to have you in the stands and look out there and try to find you. <laughs> oh, yes, I can't wait. <laughs> well, good, good. Um, so as we, as we wrap up, are there any, any mentors or people who um, – that you want to give a shout out to who have kind of, who have helped you through your, through this journey? Yes, um, of course. Um, of course, to start, I definitely want to thank the man upstairs, God, because he's the reason I'm still here today, honestly. Um, most people that contract bacterial meningitis do not live to make it, usually within the first 10 hours. 
So me and other people who have survived this, you know, we really are, we're strong. We're miracles. We're something special. And I made sure that, you know, God had a greater purpose for me. And I just want to make sure I continue to maximize that to its fullest potential. I definitely want to thank my mom and dad, my brother and sister-in-law, and my nephew, because when this first happened, they kind of dropped their lifestyle, moved into the hospital down at UVA, and, you know, they took care of me. They were my number one support system. They were there every day, every second, every hour, and I don't know what I wouldn't have done without that support. As well as, you know, my parents and my family, I would also want to thank my head coach at the time, Bonnie Henrickson, and also the head coach of the University of Virginia women's basketball team at the time, Debbie Ryan, because when Bonnie and the other coaches and my parents weren't able to be there because, they you know, they needed to go home and pay some bills or they had to attend to the, you know, the team, Debbie Ryan was there every step of the way also. She, I just, I had this thing where I couldn't be left alone. Anxiety really kicked in and she, she was always there for me. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to thank my high school basketball coach, Marcus Lewis, who's also, you know, one of the guys that got me back into coaching, which was the therapy that I needed. I, I love still be working with him, being teamed up with him still to this day. He is also, you know, one of my greatest mentors, along with my dad, my mom, and my brother. Um, also love to thank the Virginia Tech community, and really just world and nationwide, because everybody was just, I guess, drawn to my story, and... When I was in the hospital, they called my room the candy shop because that's what it looked like, uh, flowers and pictures. And even the the nurse's desk, you know, I had their ledge full of flowers because they couldn't fit in my room anymore. And streamers and stuffed animals and everything. Um, I just want to thank the world for really believing in me and rallying behind me as well. Wow. Because without all that love and support, you know, I might not be here today. Yeah. You just gave me goosebumps again for the second time. <laughs> I'm like covered in them. <laughs> That's, incre- and That's also, incredible. Yeah. My church, St. John's Baptist Church in Columbia, Maryland, and the pastor, Reverend Turner, they also, you know, they were every step of the way there supporting my parents as well. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, I'm like starting to cry right now. (laughs) You have, you have, you have quite a, quite a community that has supported you. And, and, you know, it sounds, I mean, you, you turned around and you supported not only your community, but I mean, people worldwide with your, you know, your inspiration. And it's just, it's incredible. It's incredible. I'm just Thank like, you. I just feel, I just feel so honored that I had the opportunity to talk to you and, uh, and hear oh, this wow. story. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, is there, is there anything else? Uh, well, how can people reach you? I guess would be a, a question. Yeah. So I'm 
definitely all over social media, on Facebook, Raina DuBose, and also on Instagram and Twitter. Then I also have my webpage, RainaDuBose15.Weebly.com. But I'm definitely all over social media. I love the social media. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll add all of your information on your guest page um, on the okay. on the podcast website. We'll have your, your guest and episode page, and then we'll have links to your website and social media, and also people can contact you. Um, so, well, Raina, this has been a lot of fun, and um, I just – I really enjoyed talking to you and hearing your story, hearing about your journey, hearing about, you know, the community of supporters and people that you've supported. And so I just, you know, want to say thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This was fun. (laughs) Well, good, good. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be in touch again soon. And definitely. I just, um, I just saw you sent me a friend request on Facebook. Yeah. Do you want to be my friend? (laughs) No, I just accepted. I was just like, what's going on here? And, that, and then I saw you sat in the mix. I was just like, oh, what's up in there? Well, good. Now we're friends. Now we're friends forever. <laughs> yes, we are. Definitely. <laughs> All right, Raina. Will you enjoy the rest of your day? Thank you. You too. And have a great week. All righty. You too. Bye-bye. That concludes episode 10 with Raina DeVose. I want to thank her for coming on the podcast and sharing her journey with us. If you would like to learn more about Raina and connect with her, visit our website, carlena.fireside.fm, and click on Raina's guest or episode page. If you would like to support the Carlina Show podcast, please rate and review on iTunes or visit our Patreon page and become a patron. If you are listening to this on YouTube, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Your support helps people find the show and ensures we can continue sharing Hero's Journeys with you.